Okay, so we're going to continue our series. I almost thought maybe I might finish it off uh, today, 40-point overview of the Bible. Um, but I, decided, I looked at it thought, okay, I think it's going to be a, a bit too much. Um, so what we have left of the 40 points is point 39, um, the general epistles, and then um, after that, the writings of John. Um, I'll go ahead and advance forward on our slides uh, here. Now this uh, next slide just reminds us of one of the patterns that a commentator threw out there that might help us, um, you know, just for memory purposes, really, um, I think, as much as anything. By the way, on the side here, it's not on this, but uh, I probably wouldn't have thought of this, except I saw it on the chalkboard, um, actually right over here, right, <laughs> right there, uh, from Pastor's Bible class. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I didn't even think about that till right now, probably because I'm near that and saw this. You can see a similar memorization uh, tool with the Old Testament. Uh, you get a 5, 12, 5, 5, 12 pattern of the Old Testament books. Five books of the law, 12 books of history, five poetry books, five um, uh, prophets, a major, I couldn't think of the word that I should say for bigger, <laughs> the bigger prophets, yeah. Uh, we call them the major prophets and then the 12 minor prophets. And there you have the 39 books of the Old Testament. So these little memorization tools might be helpful in, in uh, that. I think it can be helpful to memorize the books of the Bible in the order that they're in. Um, it just comes in handy um, when you're flipping through the Bible in church and you know, so quickly finding a passage. Um, I'm not going to say um, that there's any special spiritual benefit automatically by that. Um, it's more like a practical one, because, um, of course, you can always turn to the index in the front and find it that way. And, um, of course, the chapter and verse references that are in the scriptures were not originally there either. I don't remember when those were added, uh, but they were added sometime later. So that also are just tools that can make it easier to find things, but that's all they are on that. Um, so uh, no guilt trips if you decide not to memorize these patterns. I don't. Uh, you know, but you might find them helpful if you do. Okay, yes? Um, in another class you had, you showed us the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Bible. Yeah. They, they weren't in a different order, I don't think, but but they gave titles differently to them. And so... What the Jews did is, rather than call them uh, by these, uh, you know, these names here, books of history, uh, poetry, uh, major prophets. Oh, I guess that's not that's not going to help if I just do M because the next one starts with M too. Um, minor prophets. Um, the the Jews didn't um, didn't necessarily use those titles. Uh, they had the law, and then they had the, the prophets, and they had the writings. And uh, for them, they split the prophets up into two categories, the former and the latter prophets. And the former prophets were the prophets that ministered before Israel was carried off into captivity. And then the latter prophets were the prophets that ministered during the captivity or after. Um, so 
Um, some of the books that we put in books of history um, were considered former prophets, um, like, um, let me get my brain in gear here, um, take, uh, well, latter prophets be like Ezra and Nehemiah, latter prophets, uh, I'm trying to think, Samuel, yeah, Sam, the books of Samuel, former prophet. Um, so they, they, they categorized them differently. Um, so for the Jews, they didn't have this 512, 5512 pattern. Uh, they were the same books. I think they might have been in the same order, but that might be wrong. And, uh, of course, remember, they're a collection of things. They were definitely the same books. So I might have been wrong and, and misspoke. Well, it's not really misspoke, but I might have been wrong on them being in the same order. Um, so I'd have to look that up on that. Um, but that's how they uh, did it. So, um, And then the writings... Um, I think it's an interesting ver- verse. I think it's in the book of Luke. Um, Jesus talks about all that was written of the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And the Psalms was the first book. So come to think of it, if it's the first book of the writings, they would have had it in a different order. Psalms was the first book of the collection of books called the writings, and it was the largest. So when Jesus was referencing the Psalms, uh, that was really representative of that category of the writings. Um, so really what Jesus was saying is everything in the Old Testament, it prophesied about me, all that's written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And uh, you get a New Testament confirmation there of what the Old Testament canon of Scripture was, was uh, what it constituted, which I think is an interesting verse because the Apocrypha existed at that time. And uh, the Apocrypha, Jesus did not say all that was written in the Psalms and the prophets, and in the law, and the apocrypha concerning me. Um, so I think you get a New Testament um, omission of the apocrypha. We're talking about what's in the Bible. It's not there. Uh, some, some groups include the apocrypha uh, in the Bible. Uh, Catholics, for example, include that in there. Um, the original uh, translation of the King James um, four different groups translated it, and one of the groups was uh, tasked with the translating the Apocrypha. Um, I don't know for sure what their view was of the Apocrypha. By the way, the Apocrypha is not evil. Um, it's interesting. I, I've read parts of the Apocrypha. You can download it for free in Esword. Um, I think there's some interesting writings in there, um, but I don't think of it as scripture when I'm reading it. It's got a lot of history. The Apocrypha was written between the Old and New Testament. So the 400 years prior to the time of Christ gives a lot of Jewish history. So you read about things that was happening to the Jews and what was going on. Um, so I, can, I think it's helpful. It, I'm, I'm glad we have it. Uh, but that's not the same as uh, being inspired. So kind of look at it the same as when I'm reading commentaries. Um, and uh, different commentaries can be helpful, but they're not scripture. Um, so... All right, well, that's just a, a tool that can be helpful as we look at that. We've, I've shown this uh, several times. Um, we've seen in the general epistles here uh, that Revelation was uh, the uh, person who I got this from. Uh, John Phillips is his name. He's a commentator. Um, he does say, well, Revelation, let's just throw that in there just for the memorization reasons because Revelation is not really an epistle. Uh, what also um, can... Uh, be an overlap, I guess, maybe a little confusing to me. I'm looking at Dr. Tetro's 
40-point overview that we've used as a guide here. And when you get to these last two points, point number 39 is the general epistles, and point number 40 is the writings of John. Except first, second, third John, I think of as general epistles. So I'm thinking, do I include in my outline, do I include first, second, third John in point 39, general epistles? Or do I include it in point 40, John's writings? <laughs> so I, it doesn't really matter. It's all all a matter of technicalities or semantics. Um, so I'm not really worried about it because uh, either way you go, you get a feel for it. And one of the early points of this was if you get down the 40 points, you have kind of a general feel for what the Bible's about. Um, it's it's real general. I mean, you're not going to understand every truth in the Bible, but at least you kind of get a feel uh, for that. And that could be especially helpful if one doesn't have a feel for that yet. And we'll probably spend some time after we get through point 40, we'll go back and you know, kind of review those 40 points and see that again. And, and I don't know, maybe as we go on to another series, I might pull that up every now and then just, hey, there's the 40 points and you know, review is a key to memorizing. So uh, maybe that'll be helpful uh, to us. All right, well, we'll go ahead and then uh, continue in our series uh, here. So we're looking at point number uh, 39 today regarding the general epistle. So what I'm going to do today is continue that. We did, um, and again, it's a, it's a brief overview of each one. You might say a, a summary. Or... So we looked at Hebrew and James already. Uh, they're called general epistles because they are not written to a specific person or to a specific church. Therefore, they're written generally to Christians. Um, we had um, the, uh, many of the Pauline epistles uh, we call church epistles. Uh, so we looked at those already. That was one of the points. Point uh, 37, I think. Um, the church epistles written off into specific churches like Romans to the church in Rome, Corinthians to the church in Corinth, uh, Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. So they're written to specific churches. So often people say the Bible call them church epistles. Then you had... Um, Churches written to individuals, um, one of them being Philemon, the other three, though, being pastors, Timothy and Titus. So often those three books, First and Second Timothy and Titus, are called pastoral epistles. Or if we want to think of them as written to individuals, we could lump Philemon in there. So there's four epistles, so that's the, the four we saw um, here, uh, three of which are pastoral and then the other nine are general epistles. So we're going to continue that today with the books of First and Second Peter. And then we're going to skip over the, the writings of John and look at the book of Jude uh, this morning. And uh, this, again, is not an exhaustive study. Um, it's meant to just get a feel for them because we're not going in-depth into any of them. We're doing the overview. And uh, by getting a feel, perhaps it whets your appetite a little bit more if you hear some things you say, I'd like to learn more about that. Maybe in your own personal Bible reading and, and study, you might say, I want to look into that book a little bit more. Um, or perhaps you walk away saying, oh yeah, I was reminded a little bit of what those books were about. And, and uh, um, uh, prayer requests that you could um, I'll pray for regularly. Uh, pray for um, what we study in Sunday school. So I'm in prayer on that one. Lord, what do you want us to study next in Sunday school after we're done with this series. Um, so there are some thoughts that are going around 
in my mind a little bit on that. Um, but if you would pray with me on that one. Um, if the Lord's not in the Sunday school lesson, and not a lot's going to be accomplished. We've uh, been memorizing John 15. I believe it's verse 6. Without me, he can do nothing, uh, Jesus said. So uh, We're taught in the scriptures that spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. Um, spiritual discernment doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit's help. Um, so we could all be in here doing all of this in human strength and nothing really comes of it, uh, spiritually speaking. Well, that'd be, a, <laughs> that'd be a big shame to have that be the case, that our Sunday school lesson here was just a human exercise that accomplished nothing spiritually uh, for any of us or uh, grew us in Christ. And, and that'd be a shame if that was the case. So definitely want the Holy Spirit um, giving guidance and hoping, trusting uh, that he's accomplishing what he wants to. Um, and so, all right, well, let's go ahead and go into our first one. Uh, first Peter, um, regarding authorships, oops, I left an omission here. Um, but, uh, I should have put after authorship. Guess who? Peter. <laughs> All right. So I should say that on my uh, slide here. Um, if you're at home watching, I don't think I organized this in a way where it puts them up one by one. Uh, so in, in the class here, I'll, I'll have them popping up one by one. But we've got four points at home that perhaps you can see right now, the first of which uh, is authorship. Now, there's going to be a little bit of a contrast between first and uh, second Peter, and that is that the, um, those that study the Bible, and that's a, that's a broad category, by the way. Excuse me, I'm trying to tell a sneeze to go away. Those that study the Scripture, well... Some of them, I think, really try to do a good job, and they're genuine Christians, or Holy Spirit-led. Uh, some of them are something else. Some people who study the Scriptures are not even Christians. Um, they don't believe. Um, it maybe it's an academic exercise, like a historian studies history. Uh, some of them are maybe like church historians and, and studying history um, of the church and and, but don't have a personal relationship with God. And what's going to be interesting when we look at First and Second Peter is the confidence that people have in who wrote it um, is widely divergent between the two books. So there's great confidence amongst almost universally accepted, um, no matter who you're talking about, that the book of First Peter was written by Peter. But then with the book of Second Peter, that changes now. And I think those that are more Bible-believing Christians that are more conservative in their approach to Bible study um, believe Second Peter is written by, Second, uh, by Peter. Now, I will remind you that, um, that even with the Apostle Paul, uh, sometimes he had secretaries that wrote down things. And so sometimes you can ask someone that, that you know, Paul, it, the letter is Paul's, but he didn't actually write it. Like someone wrote it down for, like having a ghostwriter. Um, and so, but there's some that challenge the, um, the authorship of Second Peter on maybe grounds different than that, that someone who wasn't Peter and not even a secretary, someone wrote it and said, I'm Peter. Um, so 
I, I think that by and large, the ones who are making that case, um, I think they have other issues. Uh, other issues of a trust in God and his directing of the Holy Scriptures, um, inspiration of people to write them and guiding that process. So I'll come back to that uh, maybe in a little bit when we get to Second Peter. But here on First Peter, by and large, it's been universally accepted uh, in the early church, early church writings, and people since then. So there's not much challenge on that. First um, Peter chapter 5, verse 13, has an interesting verse that goes with our second point here about place and date. Um, it says uh, the name Babylon. First uh, Peter 5, 13, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. Okay. Well, that essentially says, um, I'm... I can't read that either way. Okay. Is that what it says? Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. It was too small. I couldn't pick it out. Sorry. Um, That's just a reminder. Okay. So the... Okay. So so back to uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Well, that was you know a common thing um, in many of the letters is to send greetings. Uh, so we have ways of writing letters that are common ways of doing it. Salutations at and uh, endings and how we organize them. Well, the question arises is, was Peter in the city of Babylon when he wrote this? And therefore, he was with the church in Babylon and sending greetings. Or perhaps, now it says the church. uh, Do you see anything uh, different about uh, the word church in your Bible, like how the the font, yeah, you see it italicized, and someone, um, you're hearing my voice too much, anyways, right? When do you tell me? Tell the rest. What's the, what's the italicized refer to? Hear another voice besides mine. Yeah, not in the original. No. This is a feminine word. Um, we don't do this as much in English, but I'm sure most of us by now have realized that in other languages sometimes you have feminine and masculine uh, words. And so in the Greek, um, there's a feminine word here. And so therefore, uh, church was church is potentially what that could refer to. It's actually feminine singular, and it doesn't really say church there. It just indicates that uh, this, whatever this is at Babylon, singular, feminine. So it's also possible that maybe it was a lady from that was from the city of Babylon. Uh, maybe. Um, it also could be uh, more um, uh, I was going to say not allegorical. I'm, I'm searching for the word here. Um, not literal, but uh, figurative. Um, it could be a more figurative just representing, and not actually the city of Babylon, but Babylon sometimes was representing a city that wasn't that good, a city that didn't honor God, um, as as it is in the book of Revelation uh, when it's used, um, and the name Babylon is talked about. So maybe that's what's going on. Thus, um, I would say we're not really sure um, where was the place of this writing. We don't have anything outside this verse that ever indicates that Peter went to the city of Babylon and ministered at the church there. Um, Some think it's actually 
a representative of the city of Rome. Uh, in the book of Revelation, when you're looking at the revived Roman Empire, it's used in that way. Um, could, it, could that be? Um, church tradition has, uh, has it that Peter died in the city of Rome, but church tradition's not inspired. And then we've run into this controversy in church history between uh, kind of Roman Catholic teaching and non-Roman Catholic teaching where they want to set up Peter as the first pope and want to tie him to the city of Rome and establish him as the first pope there. Uh, but I don't think automatically the knee-jerk reaction to say, well, because that teaching of the, the papacy and, and Peter being the first pope because that's not scriptural and not true that we automatically say, well, then he can't have ever been there. Um, I mean, whether he was in Rome or not doesn't, doesn't make him a pope. Um, so I don't know if he was in the city of Rome. Again, church tradition has him there. Um, we, uh, we know uh, by church tradition that he was crucified. Um, and I think by that tradition um, in, the, in Rome or in that area under the persecutions that went on with Nero, um, so, as far as the date goes, it is right uh, at the times of those persecutions. So, say about 67 A.D. Um, to um, about uh, 70 A.D., that's when the persecutions of Nero really start to ramp up. Uh, so, 65 A.D., I think they're kind of in that beginning uh, time of the persecutions, kind of starting to go on. Um, Nero, of course, the uh, Caesar that was a little loony, um, he got a little crazier as time went on. I mean, he's, he's one that burned down parts of the city of Rome so that he could blame it on uh, people to, like, take the heat off you. I mean, I, I know you, you've never heard of politicians trying to cover their, the, their own tracks and, and blame others for their own failure. So you, uh, this would be a news to you, never having ex heard of that before. But uh, back then, that's how Nero <laughs> did things. And, of course, he... The persecutions were really bad during the time of Nero. He's the one uh, who they would take Christians and uh, basically coat them in wax or whatever and, and actually made torches on the roadside um, at night as part of their punishment. I suppose in some way that's sort of like what the crucifixions did because they would also line the roadways with crosses. And it was a big warning. I mean, these, um, a lot of totalitarian-type societies have ruled by fear um, where, yeah, I mean, it's effective. Um, I, if I saw someone being crucified, I mean, it's bad enough in my mind, but probably if I saw it, that would make me not want to do anything to have that happen to me, and, and that's what um, often happened. It, it was a deterrent that worked. Uh, but anyways, that's what's going on during this time period. Things are starting to get bad and are even going to get worse uh, for things uh, for the Christian church. And so, again, I'm just going to leave it at this. I don't know where the, the letter was written uh, for sure. Um, possibly the city of Babylon, possibly the city of Rome, uh, possibly uh, neither. Um, now, uh, we do read in uh, the beginning, chapter 1, right at the beginning of the book, uh, we read a little bit about uh, who it's written to. Really just written to probably some uh, Gentile converts in areas that Paul had ministered to, uh, probably many of those uh, names that are there in Asia Minor, uh, but probably also Jews who were, you might say, of the dispersion. 
That is the, you know, the book of Acts, uh, Bible teach that God let the heat turn on on the early church who was all congregating there in Jerusalem and not really spreading out and carrying out the Great Commission, carry the gospel to the ends of the world, to all nations. And so persecution God used on the church to spread them. So probably uh, many uh, Jewish Christians had fled Jerusalem and were out in different spots. Uh, So thus a general epistle uh, to a number of people all over the place. And so then uh, we have purpose. I'll put up um, purpose and theme together here. Uh, It's a kind of, I mean, you know, you have a reason while you're writing it. So therefore, because I'm writing it for this reason, I have this theme. And that's how the two kind of go together. Um, Well, they want to encourage, encourage the Christians in the midst of all this persecution going on. And so the theme of this book is a proper attitude. Oops, I should hit the button one more time. The proper attitude and behavior of believers in the midst of persecution is the theme of our book here. So then if we go to our next slide, these points that are on this slide are kind of a summary of the the book of 1 Peter. And so, again... Encouraging believers in the midst of persecution. Now, before we um, take a look at these, um, we could, of course, make one obvious application. If you're in the midst of persecution, this book's for you. Um, I think, though, other applications could be made. What about just, you know, you're going through hard times, period. Might not be hard times from persecution, but it could be hard times for some other reason. And so when you're going through hard times, when you're struggling spiritually, what are some things that should be thoughts? Um, And I say struggling spiritually, um, that in part was it, uh, but maybe it was people that weren't even struggling spiritually, but there's there's that aspect of wanting to prevent that. Uh, Strengthen believers so that you're not going to be struggling spiritually during times of persecution, during times of hardship. Or if you already are struggling, here's some things to think about. And so Peter, on Peter's heart was strengthening Christians so that they wouldn't be struggling uh, because of this. Um, now, these are actually um, the ideal, I believe. It doesn't say this in the book of First Peter, but I think the ideal is um, get this down when you're not struggling spiritually and you don't have hardship. So then when you're hitting the hardship, you've already kind of got them there. And uh, so uh, these are some of the things that we can see in the book of 1 Peter. Well, what does it say here on our slide? Believers can be encouraged during times of persecution because we're born again, like we're Christians. We have an inheritance. And during the present persecution, we can be refined and God can be glorified. And so those are really um, some of the major teachings in the book of First Peter. Let's take a look at a few of the verses just to see this. Again, quickly looking at it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. We have a living hope, is what the word lively means. We have a living hope. Um, hope in the Bible, of course, has the idea of, of a confident expectation that you don't currently have. Like, None of us currently are in heaven. None of us currently have 
experienced the full blessings of being saved and all that goes with that, including and salvation is so much more than just what's going to happen to us when we die, although that's a big part of it. It's also the benefits in this life. But we have a hope. Now, the, part, the benefits of salvation we've already experienced are not a hope because we've already, we already have uh, received that. But uh, again, a hope in the Bible is a confident expectation about something future. But uh, the confidence uh, is the key difference between that and how we use the hope in modern English, where there's less confidence about, like, oh, I really hope that happened, but I'm not sure it's going to. Okay, so we have a lively hope by being born again. Now, the extent to which we personally are confident about that, um, I believe... Uh, largely comes uh, from our view of God himself, because that's really where the hope lies. Will God keep his word? Is what he says in the Bible really true about what salvation is about? Uh, will I really go to heaven when I, um, when I pass away? The, the, the confidence is going to rest in that. We'll come back to that um, thought here when we look at the next one. Uh, we'll, we have our inheritance. Well, keep reading down there in verse 4. To an inheritance. So we not only are born again, but we... Um, we have this lively hope, or this living hope in us, and it, it's to an incorruptible inheritance, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Of course, when you're in the midst of persecution, it's got something to look forward to on that. Um, I think on the flip side, in America, we don't face a lot of persecution, maybe a little bit. Um, so uh, for us sometimes, uh, maybe the temptation not to look forward to that like we should is there because things are going pretty well here um, and so when you're in persecution though sometimes you're like I just want to be done of course the Bible speaks of that with old age when the evil days come when you say I have no pleasure in this but sometimes people get to that I'm so miserable with my physical uh, frailties and my pains and aches that I just want to be done I know my grandma kind of got that way Christian lady um, my mom's mom she just wanted to be done at the end. Like, I mean, but she had, she had a living hope. And um, I don't know that she was miserable, but I mean, even when you're not in great pain, still, you lay there without much to do a lot of the day because physically she couldn't do a lot. And, she just, and her husband, my grandfather, had passed away a number of years before that. I think she was just wanted to be done and because she had a hope of something better. And uh, so I think it's just a healthy thing for Christians to have that hope, period, because heaven is going to be better than what we got going on here, and just to be reminded of that. But in verse uh, 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last days. And so really, it's kept here. The idea of the word kept is like um, a garrison at a fort um, guarding it. So when you're at a fort, there's people, there's guards at the towers, and, and they're keeping the fort. They're, they're doing watch over it. Well, who's watching over our salvation? Who's watching over our inheritance? It's kept by the power of God. And, and so that's um, really where our confidence is. And we'll have greater confidence to the extent that's true. Um, if our confidence is, okay, I know I prayed a prayer at one point in my life. I hope I prayed it the right way. Um, I hope I really meant it. Um, it. It can really get us shaky uh, when we're thinking about, you know, us and how good we did it. Um, really, it's it, the confidence is, does God keep his word? Does he have the power to keep it? 
Does he have the intention of keeping it? Um, are we born again according to God, and did he really, you know, did he really mean it? So the more we understand who God is and trust him, the greater confidence we have that our salvation is being guarded by him and our inheritance guarded by him. So that's one of the teachings there you could see during times of persecution. That could be a real encouragement there um, when things are going bad. And so that was one of the messages uh, here in the book of uh, Peter. He goes on to say in verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Uh, so things are heavy at that time. And a manifold, tempt, a manifold just meaning many, and temptations, I mean, that can be temptation to sin, but it can be temptation to do anything, just something you're like tempted to do. And I'm sure in some cases, maybe they were tempted to um, give in to that temptation, such as if you deny the faith, the pressure of persecution could be off. And so that's one of the, the themes that's here in verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so they have the opportunity to find out that after all these bad things, that they're grown in their faith, and God's glorified, and God's the one securing all this, and so that could be encouragement for them in the midst of these tough times. Okay, so then on our next slide as we take a look at Second uh, Peter, as I mentioned, some have some debates on the authorship of this. Um, so um, I'll, I'll say a few things here, and I might come back uh, to it as we continue to talk about Second uh, Peter. But I'll quote one um, one source. Some people have denied that Peter ever wrote it, mainly because of the divergence in tone between First and Second Peter. This difference, however, has been exaggerated. Why cannot a person write in more than one style, especially if the subject is different? Consider the writer of the epistle, uh, considering that the writer of the epistle claims to have been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now that's Second Peter chapter one verse eighteen. That's when the writer of Second Peter, Peter, says, "And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount." So he makes reference, I was there. Um, so definitely, by the way, no one denies that the writer of Second Peter is, isn't saying, I'm Peter. Um, just some people are saying, well, maybe well, he wasn't. Um, but, uh, and the writer goes on to uh, say um, that he heard from the lips of the Lord himself that how he was going to die. Uh, that's, uh, of course, Jesus uh, told Peter that you're going to die before I come back. Um, the other people uh, didn't know that. I mean, the early church was waiting for the return of Jesus, as they should have. And the current church should be waiting for the return of Jesus. Um, but Peter knew he wasn't going to see the return of Jesus, because uh, Jesus told him that. So in Second Peter 1.14, he says, Knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place. And he was referring to his body, even as our Lord Jesus hath showed me. So he says, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to die not too long. Um, I'm expecting that because Jesus t showed that to me. Um, he also claims in this epistle that he wrote a, another epistle. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This second 
uh, epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. And then he speaks of Paul as a brother beloved in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 15. Um, so definitely the writer of it is talking as, as if it's Peter. But really what I mentioned to you is, is people look at some of the tone and say, well, that doesn't sound like Peter. And then they also look at um, some, some different aspects in the early church um, where um, you know, there's not as much talk about Second Peter amongst the writings. So they say, well, maybe the early church didn't think it was actually the Bible. I would say maybe it's kind of uh, circumstantial um, in nature. Um, and so, anyways, I'm not going to spend uh, more time on uh, that particular aspect than that. Uh, but the uh, place and date of this is probably shortly after First Peter was written, uh, around A.D. 67. And the purpose and themes of the book here, to remind believers of certain doctrines while warning of false teachers. Of course, doctrine just means uh, Bible teachings. So in Second Peter, Peter is saying, hey, I've got some teachings and truths that I want to remind you of. And a major reason why is because there were false teachers teaching false things. And so he wanted to counteract that, but not only counteract the false teachings, but put in their minds uh, good teachings that they should keep in mind. And so um, one of the major themes then is you need to remember right teaching. There's actually a benefit to that. What we believe, what we study, what we know does matter. Ignorance is not bliss, um, except maybe one area. The only thing I could think of that sometimes is better off not knowing is knowledge of wickedness and sin. The more we fill our minds with that, that can have a detriment. Now, there might be some times where some people have a need to know, like maybe a police officer has a need to know maybe criminal thinking as you're trying to fight against that. But that's often rough on uh, Christian police officers when they, they get that in their minds. And, and uh, so that's, that's kind of a, it's a dangerous thing. But besides that, though, especially good things, um, getting those in our minds and, and having the Holy Spirit help us uh, with that. And so those are uh, some of the themes that are in the book of Second Peter. So we'll go to... Um, come back to that in a moment when we look at a summary of the book but some of the special considerations of the book um, well the recipients of the book probably likely um, the same that first peter was written to but again you get um, a little bit more into um, the controversy of you know some people have where they wonder if peter wrote it Um, and it's in the beginning of this book, it may be that Peter's opening statement was more general in this letter than you saw in First Peter because he intended this letter to have a wider circulation, possibly. Uh, but that would make sense because false teachers were penetrating everywhere. So that's just uh, under, under special considerations, just is there something you know, a little unusual going on with the book in one way or the other, positive or negative. Um, Another uh, potential, oops, uh, one more time, special consideration uh, here is uh, false teachers um, in this book. Uh, false teachers will enter the church and, sed- oh, I'm, I'm on the wrong slide here. I got ahead of myself. I was like, what, something didn't make sense. Okay. Um, the authenticity of the book actually 
the authenticity is something I've talked about already. I'm really getting back uh, to that. Um, here's one other person, by the way, that um, is maybe uh, shares a little bit aspect of those that question the authenticity, kind of um, what they're thinking, and uh, says the evidence which really rules out composition during Peter's lifetime is that of literary genre and that of date. And it's, so really, they're saying it doesn't sound like Peter literary genre, and we don't. We're thinking maybe it wasn't written at that time, so it must not have been Peter. Again, I think it's circumstantial. And so uh, one writer says the, the external evidence regarding Second Peter is not conclusive, um, but it is noteworthy. And then he goes on to say wh- why people object against it. So I'll leave it at that. Um, what's the special consideration of this book? It's just to be aware if, if any of the books is challenged the most on authorship, it's really the book of Second Peter is one where that's the case. Um, so... Now let's go to the summary slide here. Second Peter uh, summary. Um, and I'm going to put up uh, the points here so we can see um, all four of them. Okay. The sufficiency of God's word as a guide to Christian living. See that in Second Peter 1.12. Um, talks about and be established in the present truth. So the God's word is a key. If we want to be strong, uh, as Christians, we need to be established in the present uh, truth. Okay? And false teachers are going to come into the church. He tells us in Second Peter 1.16, though, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. And they're not Aesop's fables, not made-up stories, but in other words, we're not following teachings that have been devised in a cunning fashion to draw you away from the truth. In fact, we're not following man-made teachings at all, is what he's saying. Because then he goes on in the verses that follow verse 16 uh, to talk about what type of prophecy, what type of teaching we are following. Verse 19, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And you would do well to listen to it. And the prophecy, verse 20, um, did not come of private interpretation. These weren't people making this up and telling us uh, teachings, because it didn't come from man at all, verse 21. It came when holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so it gets into the teaching, uh, Bible teaching on inspiration. And so, again, um, counteracting false teachings and the sufficiency of the Word of God as our guide. Um, It does teach in here that it's possible to identify a false teacher, um, you're going to identify them by their life, by their works. Not so much by what they say. They sound good sometimes. They say things that sound spiritual. They sound like they're followers of God. But then you listen to them closer. Think about what, where they're going with some of that good-sounding stuff or what they're actually doing. And you can identify them, um, this book uh, teaches. And so, what should we do? Well... We should have this uh, mentality looking towards the return of Christ and let's let Jesus find us when he comes, find us being people who are living godly, that we're actually doing what's right and uh, we're trying to live our lives that way. So it's an encouragement to us along those lines. If there were more time, I would read a little bit more out of that. But I think um, I'll save Jude um, and use that as a stopping uh, point uh, there, uh, but 
one of the verses towards the end of Second Peter says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And so will we uh, be caught off guard? Another verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, God is not slack concerning his promises. Some were saying, well, it's been a while. Yeah, Jesus isn't probably coming back, because if he's coming back, where is he? I don't see any evidence. Yeah, things are going to go on like they've always been going on. And uh, there was a reminder from Peter, well, might have looked that way back in the time of Noah, but God kept his promise, and the flood did happen. Yeah. It was a long time between the time of the promise before the flood actually happened. Over a hundred years of Noah building an ark. And uh, so let's not have the same attitude. God's not slack. He doesn't look at time the way we do. A thousand years is one day and vice versa. Don't let the seeming of, and let's put it in our times, it's been over 2,000 years. Uh, not to say, oh, well, maybe, maybe it's not going to happen after all. Because God's not slack. He, he's going to keep his promise. It's going to happen. So let's let us uh, find that when Jesus comes back, he looks at us and says, well, well done. Good job, faithful servant. And so, all right, well, we'll leave it at that for our lesson.